Our story today begins in the country, in the nation of Babylon, where King Nebuchadnezzar decided that he wanted more helpers in his court. So he called his chief official and he said, I need helpers. Now, we had a war not so long ago and we took some captives. So I want you to go and look at those captives and I want you to find some who are young and handsome and smart. And I want you to teach them how to speak our language and I want you to feed them the finest food so they will be strong and healthy and then they can help in my court. So the chief official went, he left the king, he went to where the captives were, he looked at all of them and finally he chose the ones he wanted. And four of them were Israelites, some of God's people. Their names were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So the chief official called in teachers to teach Daniel and his three friends and the other captives who were chosen how to speak the Babylonian language. And then servants came in and they laid the table with the finest food, the same kind of food that the king ate. And when Daniel and his three friends saw the food, they knew they had a problem because the food was a kind of food that God's law said they shouldn't eat. The king, they were the king's captives, and he said, eat the food. But they were also God's people. They were God's people first, and his law said, don't eat the food. So what would they do? Would they give in and eat the king's food? Or would they be faithful to God? I wonder what you would do. Well, Daniel went to the chief official and he said, can my friends and I just eat vegetables and drink water? Because this food you have brought, for us to eat it, it would dishonor and disobey God. And the chief official said, the king said you should eat this food. What if you eat vegetables and you just get weak and sick? The king will get angry at me. Daniel had an idea. He said to the chief official, why don't you do a test? For 10 days, feed everybody else the king's fine food, but feed my friends and I just vegetables and water. And at the end of 10 days, see who is healthy and strong. The chief official agreed to that. So for 10 days, the servants came in and they laid the table with the finest food in the land for all of the other captives but they brought in just vegetables and water for Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And for 10 days, that was all they ate. They just ate the vegetables and drank the water. At the end of the 10 days, the chief official came in. He said, everybody line up. So all the captives got in a line and the chief official went down the line and he looked at every single one of them to see who was strong and healthy. All of the captives who ate the king's fine food looked strong. They looked healthy. Then the chief official came to Daniel and to Shadrach and to Meshach and Abednego. They looked strong. They looked healthy. In fact, 
they looked stronger and healthier than everybody else. And so from that day on, all of the captives only ate vegetables and drank water. And God gave Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego great learning and wisdom. So I wonder, what would you do? Would you give in and do what the king said? Or would you be faithful to God? I wonder, even if it didn't turn out well, what would you do? Would you give in or still be faithful to God? Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. You can go back to your seats. Thanks, Beth. Hey, choir kids, let me tell you something. Y'all are rock stars. Like no offense band, but could y'all do that, what they just did with those cups? There's no way. Come on, y'all are awesome. Thanks for leading us in worship. Glad y'all were here. Uh, let's pray and we'll get started. Father, we are so grateful. Uh, grateful that we have uh, this ancient text filled with these ancient stories, but when we read them, even thousands of years later, we find that they're just our story and they're so relevant, so timely and so instructive, not only to who you are and what you've done, but how we are to respond each and every day. So as always, we pray that you would open our minds, open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, that we could receive what you have for us today. Let us use our hands to help those in need and get our feet to the ground so that we can go make disciples of the nations just as you commanded. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said, Amen. So that story is from Daniel chapter one. Today, we're gonna read most of Daniel chapter three. And we're gonna learn more about these three guys with weird names. And we're gonna see how Daniel's three friends, how their lives bear witness to the character and the works of God. And the book of Daniel as a whole is a really fascinating piece of literature. It is the story of these four Jewish boys. They were boys when they were first taken into captivity when Babylon came in and destroyed and conquered Israel, and this happened about 600 years before the birth of Jesus. And as Beth mentioned, as conquering nations do, they come in and they kill and enslave most people, but they take the best and the brightest. They trained them, they raised them to be good, upstanding Babylonians. And as Beth said, Daniel and his three friends were some of them. And I'm just gonna refer to them by their Babylonian names as she did Shadrach, Meshach. And I don't know about you, but I grew up in Texas, Beth did not. Growing up in Texas in Sunday school, when we heard the story, it was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. <laughs> but Beth pronounced it right. It's Abednego. It's important. But they're taken from their home. Their people have been conquered. But from their perspective, compared to most, they were among the lucky ones. They're treated really well. They were given what was at the time a world-class education offered a place to live, the best clothes, and offered the best food. By the time we get to chapter three, they all have government jobs. Every chapter actually ends with them all getting a promotion. <laughs> but the book of Daniel is not about four young boys who were just given new prosperous lives. It's about something really serious. It's about this knife's edge of faithfulness. 
It's about four young Jewish boys who will become men in Babylon who have to navigate a life of faith as they are being trained and fed and housed and employed by what was an idolatrous and pagan nation. Will they remain faithful to God? What will it take for them to pull that off? as they wake up every day in a culture that stands against everything that they stand for. In chapter one with Daniel, they make this radical choice concerning food. And by the time we get to chapter three, things have gotten really real. So I'm gonna read this to you. We're not gonna put the words up on the screen. I just want you to hear this. Try to imagine, picture the scene in your mind. It's a familiar story to most, but try to hear it as if you're hearing it for the first time. It goes like this, King Nebuchadnezzar, made an image of gold, 90 feet tall and nine feet wide. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then he summoned the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. So the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. And then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and people of every language, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the, z- the z- sorry, zither, I mean, come on, the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. <sighs> That's exhausting. Like, and I don't know, maybe, could you hear like maybe a little irritation as I had to keep reading those long lists of government positions and all those different kinds of musical instruments? I mean, it would have saved us like five minutes already if it would have just said all the government officials and all the instruments known to man. <laughs> That's all it means. So why did I just have to read that over and over? Why belabor it? Why is the author taking up so much time and so much space by saying the same thing over and over? And if you're familiar with scripture, you know that this happens a lot. And when we see that repetition, we're tempted to skip past it. But there is a reason the Bible does this. In this case, this is one way that the Hebrews use satire in order to make a point. The author wants you to feel a little bit ridiculous as you're reading all of this. Because he's trying to paint a picture for us to help us understand just how ridiculous the situation is. I mean, were you picturing it as I read? The most important people in the known world gathering around a gold-plated pole in the middle of the desert. Granted, probably the tallest pole any of them had ever seen and clearly very shiny, but it was just a gold-plated pole. And they're supposed to fall down on their face and worship it. The most important people in the world gathered around a gold-plated pole. And then they fall on their face in worship when they hear what? What do they hear? Like, yeah, okay, good. All the noises is kind of one way to say that. At the end of it, when it says pipe in this translation, some translations say bagpipe. 
which does not fit with that culture. <laughs> and the reason is because to some people, a bagpipe is an intolerable sound. <laughs> it's cacophony. It's chaos. And they use that on purpose because the last word in this sentence in the Hebrew or in the original language is really saying this is nothing but noise. And it reminds me of like my first day of middle school band. <laughs> just... The most important people in the world falling on their face to worship a gold-plated pole at the sound of noise. It's nonsense. It's ridiculous. It is absurd. And Hebrew satire is designed to make that point. But something interesting happens in the way the story is told. The language starts to change right here. Because now things aren't so funny. Things are about to get serious. At this time, some astrologers come forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. You've got to say that first. May the king live forever. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve you nor your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. And furious with rage... Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now, notice this really quick. You remember that I told you Daniel and his friends by this time, they had been promoted and they have high-profile government jobs. The king called the most important people, including government officials, to this scene. Where were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? We don't know, but we know they weren't there. They had to be summoned. They had to be brought forward to the king. Why weren't they there? Remember that for later. Now back to the story, Nebuchadnezzar continues. He says, now, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music... If you're ready to fall down and worship the image I've made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? All right, so I want to stop for just a minute. What is this story about? Like, raise your hand if you've ever heard this story before. It just, I mean... If you didn't learn it in Sunday school as a child, just even culturally, the idea of a fiery furnace is familiar, and it comes from here. We're all familiar with the story at some level. But what is the story about? Like, we have the threat of that fiery furnace, but we've read half the story so far, and we're not to the furnace yet. I mean, that's where the story's going. But what have we been talking about this whole time so far? Y'all, this story is not about three men being thrown into a fiery furnace. That's the consequence. The story is about idolatry. It's about that knife's edge of faithfulness that God's people have to walk when they're living in the midst of a culture that claims to be the possessor of absolute truth or maybe even a culture that says there is no absolute truth. When they're living in the midst of a culture that demands the kind of obedience and allegiance and worship that only God deserves. And oftentimes, 
in scripture and throughout history. Cultures and nations are able to lead people into that kind of idolatry because they claim divine authority. I want to show you a picture. Um, this guy's name is Baldur von Schirach. Uh, he's standing next, of course, to Adolf Hitler. And I hate to give them any airtime, but it's important. We've got to know this story. Uh, Baldur would become the leader of the Hitler Youth. And years before the world fully understood the depths of the atrocities that Germany was committing, I mean, the literal furnaces that were waiting for their enemies and for innocent people alike, von Schirach said this. He said this in an interview with the London Times. And again, remember, this is before the world at large had any idea what they were up to. He said this. One cannot be a good German and at the same time deny God. An arousal of faith in the eternal German, what they called the Superman, is at the same time an arousal of faith in the eternal God. If we act as true Germans, we act according to the laws of God. Whoever serves Adolf Hitler serves Germany. Whoever serves Germany serves God. That should have been a red flag. Like, have you ever wondered how an entire people can be convinced that it's okay, that it's good to put six million Jews into gas chambers and then into furnaces? How do you convince a people to go along with it? You claim divine authority. Then you use that authority to set one people against another. Then you blur the lines between political ambition and the work of God in the world. And then you use liturgical language, you use the language of faith to get them to apply their faith to their cultural values. Those who disagree are not just disagreeing with a political system, they are disagreeing with a faith at that point and they have become the enemy. An enemy is less than human and anyone less than human is expendable. From the very beginning, the Bible is telling these incredible stories of God's miraculous deliverance of his people from every kind of suffering and bondage, a God that is worthy of worship and praise. Our story starts today almost like a joke. People from every tribe and tongue gathered around a gold-plated pole falling on their face when they hear the noise of the middle school band. And they do it just because the king told them to do it. It's absurd, it's insane. Babylon, Nazi Germany, and so many others throughout the centuries, they have done the same thing. They are stains on human history and those are ones that we can never forget. Go back to the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him. They said, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude changed toward them. It says literally, his image twisted. 
He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded his strongest soldiers to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. And the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. One really clear sign that a culture has turned is when it devalues human life. You know it's really turned when it's not just the life of its enemies, but its own citizens that it has no value for. Those were his strongest men in his army, and he sacrificed their lives just to save his face and get those three men in the furnace as fast as he could. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaps to his feet in amazement and asks his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And what are you going to say to a king who just threw people into a fire? Yes, sir. (laughs) Certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Really quick, what or who did Nebuchadnezzar see in the flames? Now look, Nebuchadnezzar didn't know anything about the God of Israel. Every time he refers to the God of Israel, he uses the wrong language. And of course, nobody in the story had any idea who Jesus was yet. But on this side of the cross in the empty tomb, we know exactly who it was that stood with them in the midst of those flames. And y'all, that is a really important note. It's a very important part of this story that we miss when we teach it to children. God didn't save them from the furnace. He allowed them to be thrown into it. What did he do? He entered into the furnace and he stood in the flames with them. He put his full power on display for the king and for all Babylon to see, not by manipulating events to keep them from the potential of suffering, but by joining them in it, by standing with them, and then ultimately delivering them from death. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I think he shouted because it was really hot. He probably was really far away. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God. That sounds like faithful language, but it's not. He messed that up too. But servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowd around them. Do you notice that list is shorter? It's not satire anymore. This is serious. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. All right, so what's the story about? Yes, the lessons we learned from this story as children are true. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they trusted in God, and God was faithful to them and delivered them. The problem is if we stop there, if we think that that is the extent to which this story bears witness to who God is, to what God has done, to what that says about who we are and how we are supposed to live in response, then we are just seriously shortchanging the power 
of a story that I think is insanely relevant to us today. Like we have seen this complicated story. It starts with satire, looking at just how ridiculous idolatry is, how absurd it is that image bearers of the creator of the universe can so easily be duped into worshiping and giving their ultimate allegiance to something the creator created. (laughs) Whether it's a gold-plated pole, a Babylonian king, or a German tyrant. And y'all, when we read these stories, we cannot forget that right now, right now, we have brothers and sisters around the world who are being led down this same path. And the consequences of their obedience to God is the furnace, real physical suffering and death. You guys know last month, Andrew, Travis, and I were in Germany, and part of that time, we went to Dachau, which is a memorial concentration campsite. And it's rebuilt to help us remember this story, but we stood in the place where they were gassed. And then we walked through that room into the place where they were burnt in the furnaces. I came back from that trip and read the story and I wept, and I'm not really much of a crier, but it forever changed the way I read the story and it reminds me of what is happening right now to people around the world as a consequence of being obedient to God. Today in our culture, we're not being summoned to go downtown this afternoon to bow and worship a physical idol that somebody made. But y'all, we are being led in the worship of idols all the same. And idolatry is absurd and it's ridiculous. Whether you're bowing down to a gold-plated pole or whether you're worshiping the money that it takes to build one or if you're worshiping the ideals those things stand for. In our culture, we're not threatened with the loss of life or physical pain if we're not obedient to the world. For us, it's the loss of our soul, losing our humanity. God's image in us is being distorted and destroyed by things that are trying to displace and replace him as Lord of our lives. And our culture is creating new idols every day. It's hard to keep up. But y'all, they're really easy to identify. Anything that is not God, by definition, was created by God. That means that if you give ultimate allegiance and authority to anything other than God, you're worshiping a part of creation and not the creator. That's idolatry. Anytime you are more dependent upon any part of creation than you are dependent upon the one who created That is a red flag. And idols can be anything. They can be ideas that move in and make their homes in our minds. Ideas that we may be tempted to fight for or protest against. Idols can be things that keep our hands and our eyes and our bodies occupied and distracted. The bottom line, if they're not a part of God's design and plan for life as his image bearers, it's a potential idol. And we've got to be wise enough to be able to tell the difference. And look, I'm not going to use like a soapbox to tell you exactly what our specific idols are. Like you, we all have to do that work. Only I and God know what's going on in my heart and my mind. Only God and I know when I am more dependent upon a created thing than I am upon the creator himself. 
That's why we all have to do the hard work of identifying the idols in our culture and in our lives so that we can set them aside, put them down, put those to the furnace so that God will be glorified and we can be transformed. So look, this story is so important because it offers a real warning of real danger, not only for all people, not only for idolaters, but for God's people. Whether, whether we are willingly engaging in cultural idolatry or if we just lack the discernment and the wisdom to tell when we are, either way, we become a reflection of the darkness and brokenness in this world. We may be able to continue to live our lives. Oftentimes, we do so in comfort. What the idols might be telling us is prosperity. <laughs> but we become Creatures who no longer reflect the image of God. Creatures who are no longer who and what God created us to be. So I want to quickly show you, uh, throughout the whole book, uh, Daniel and these three friends of his, they consistently bear witness. They consistently put their faith on display while they're living in an unholy and idolatrous culture. And they do three things. They remember they resist, and they rely. And I'm so thankful that they chose things that start with the letter R because it makes it really easy to remember. <laughs> I did walk into a Sunday school class after the first service, and they were like, what were the, what were the three things again? So I was like, remember? <laughs> anyway, uh, they remember, they resist, and they rely. Even though they were taken captive, they were exiled from their home. They traveled across the desert from Israel to Babylon, even though they were given a world-class Babylonian education, housing, clothes, offered the king's food, they still remembered. They remembered the God of Israel, the God of their parents and their grandparents, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They remembered his faithfulness to them. They remembered his purpose for them, that they were called to live as a light to the nations, that they as a people were blessed to be a blessing to the nations, even the pagan and idolatrous one that destroyed their temple and their homes. They received a world-class Babylonian education. Thank God before they did, their parents and their grandparents and their rabbis and their community grounded them in the truth of who God is and what he has done. They remember and they reflect on God's truth as they are getting accustomed to the Babylonian way of life. And in certain ways, they live it. They don't try to escape. They could have run off into the desert and hid. They weren't in bondage. They took government jobs. They were free to roam and work. They were so good at those jobs, they keep getting promoted over and over. And by the end, they have positions of real influence. They knew that at its core, it was a pagan and idolatrous nation, but they used their influence for the good of that nation and its citizens. So they remember, but they also resist. But they pick their moments. They don't resist every time Babylon does something they disagree with. They'd be resisting every day. But when it was a direct challenge to their ability to stand on that knife's edge of faithfulness to God. That's when they resist. But here's what's important. 
How did they resist? They could have protested. They could have made signs. They could have shouted at the unholy idolaters, warning them that they're going to burn in hell. It's a church in our country right now that that's what they're known for. They show up at soldiers' funerals with signs that say, thank God for dead soldiers. They protest rights marches of every kind. That's what they're known for. (laughs) They could have protested. Even more extreme than that, they could have turned to violence. They were high-powered government officials. They probably could have brought some people along and could have tried to destroy it all. But what did they do? They just stayed home. (laughs) They just stayed home, and they said no. All the officials were called to come and bow down. They resist by simply staying home. Nebuchadnezzar, he would have never known if they hadn't been ratted out by their coworkers. This is actually the third time this has happened in the book. They're just not there when everything starts because they stayed away. And then when they're confronted by the king, what do they do? They can't hide, they can't stay away, but what do they do? They, They say no. No. We won't do it. You see, the reason their resistance is so powerful is because they were innocent. The only thing they could be accused of was not worshiping a gold-plated pole, and they agreed that they were guilty of that. They said, we're gonna make no attempt to defend ourselves against your stupid law. But they couldn't be accused of returning evil for evil. Their witness was powerful because they were innocent in their resistance. Just like a Jewish teacher who 600 years later will tell his disciples, This world is going to cause you trouble, but don't be afraid because I have overcome the world. And then one of his followers later on describes the way in which he overcame the world by hanging on a cross. And then walking out of a tomb. And in doing so, he put the powers of this world to shame, is what it says in Colossians 2. It was his innocence that made that witness to God's power so powerful. It's the same for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they remember, they resist, but finally they rely on God. And it is a radical reliance on God that will become throughout history one of the most effective witnesses to the power of God. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Like, you have to pay close attention to what they're saying. He's able to deliver us. And the next thing they say is 100% true. He will deliver us from your majesty's hand, whether that's through a miracle or through death. <laughs> We're no longer going to be your subjects. But even if he does not, even if the miracle does not come through, we want you to know, your majesty We will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Respectful? What do they call them? Your majesty. Respectful, innocent, peaceful, no. Do what you will.
Y'all, Christians are called to be a part of the world around us. We cannot be a blessing to the world if we isolate ourselves from it. And I do believe that we live in an unholy and idolatrous society. But I don't hate it because I think it's one that's full of men, women, and children that God dearly loves, just as he loves you and me. And if we are in Christ, we are called to love them too and be a witness in whatever way we can. Christians are called to be active participants in the world around us. We're just not to be of it. We're supposed to be different. So how can we, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how can we bear witness to the goodness and holiness of God in the midst of an unholy and idolatrous society? How can we walk that knife's edge of faithfulness to God as we live and serve in the world? And I think that we start by finding balance, by balancing our participation in the culture with our resistance against it. And look, how we do this This requires a much longer conversation and it's not one that can happen one way. It's a conversation that needs to happen in smaller groups of us throughout the week, at dinner tables, on our couches, in small groups. But as we do that, as we meet in smaller groups, we have to resist the temptation to take our guidance from the noise around us, from cable news, from social media, from what our neighbor might have said. And we have to remember to have those conversations guided by the faithful witness of three Jews who lived a couple thousand years ago in Babylon. Be quick to remember. Remember who the God is we serve and what he has called us to do. Be faithful to resist and slow to protest when we do so that we are guilty of nothing more than being faithful to Jesus Christ. And then be consistent in our reliance on God's great power to save, a power that was put on its fullest display in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, a power that now lives within us through his Holy Spirit. There are moments when we will really be tested. We have to pay attention so that we can recognize them and rely on God's power to pull us through. Amen? Let's pray. Father, grateful for old ancient stories that are completely describing what it's like for us to live today. So we pray that you would give us the courage and the strength to turn to the witness of these faithful followers, to remember that when we are given the opportunity to simply say no, that we'll be brave enough to do it. And that in doing so, that we would bear witness not to our goodness, not to our righteousness, but to yours, to your power, to your righteousness, to your holiness, to your great and wonderful name. Give us the courage and the strength to do it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.